The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. This morning we are returning to our series of messages in the great book of Colossians. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. You will remember that all along in our study in this book, we have said that Paul has focused on the incomparable Christ. The incomparable Christ. He has attempted to teach us that Christ is supreme. In him is all blessedness, and therefore we are not to seek blessedness outside of him. He is the all-sufficient Christ. In chapter 1, Paul focuses on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul deliver five warnings against those who might call into question the all-sufficiency of the incomparable Christ. We saw him speak against persuasive speech, drawing us away from the sufficiency of Christ in verse 4 of chapter 2. We saw him speak against false speculation, leading us away from Christ in verse 8 of chapter 2. We saw him speak against a a legalism, a bowing down to man-made rules and rituals, leading us away from from the all-sufficiency of Christ, in verse 16 of chapter 2. And we saw Paul speak against angel worship and all forms of false worship in chapter 2. And again, at the very end of chapter 2, in verse 20, we saw him speak against the abuse of the body for the supposed sake of spiritual good. Asceticism is what it's called. All of these things he warns against in chapter 2. And again, he reminds us throughout that chapter that when we are in fellowship with Christ, when we are in relation to Christ, when we are united to Christ, from that flows all the fullness that we could ever hope for in the Christian life. We don't find fullness in the Christian life by starting with Christ and then obtaining some second subsequent blessing that really leads us into spiritual fullness. All fullness is found in Christ. We grow in that fullness, but it is found in Christ, not by searching someplace else. Forgiveness is found in Christ. There is no name under heaven whereby we can be saved, whereby we can be forgiven except his name. Freedom is found in Christ, for it is only in Christ and under his rule that we find freedom. These things Paul has stressed in chapters 1 and 2. Now, when we come to verse 1 of chapter 3, we come to a turning point in this letter. Paul is moving from setting forth the doctrine of the incomparable Christ to the application of that doctrine to Christian living. So let us now hear the word of the living God, inspired and fallible, inerrant, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, this is your word, and as such, it is meant for our equipping and our edification. It is also meant for our reproof and correction. As we come 
to your word, cause us, uh, cause it, your word, to enter into our hearts in such a way that we are ready to be changed and corrected by it. Also, as we come to your word this morning, may we come not judging this word, but may we come to be judged by this word. It is a blessing, O God, to be sought out and judged by you and so corrected and sent down the way of life. Do this for us, we pray, by the work of the Spirit, and cause us to be hearers and doers of the word, all for the glory of Christ. We pray also for Caleb this morning, as in just a few moments he'll be preaching in Indiana. We pray for you to bless the preaching of your word there. Uh, that all who come under the hearing of that word this morning will have their minds renewed and their, their lives changed. We thank you, Father, for the power of your word and that it always accomplishes the task for which you send it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we turn to chapter 3 in the book of Colossians, Paul is now concerned with the practical effects of his teaching for Christian living. It's not that what he has been saying in the previous two chapters is impractical. Not at all. Far from it. In fact, the Apostle Paul would argue that if we do not understand the teaching, the doctrine, the theology that he has set forth in the first two chapters, we will not know how to live the Christian life. And so now we see Paul move from a focus on the person of Christ and the work of Christ in the first two chapters to a focus on Christian living beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, and continuing all the way down to chapter 4, verse 6. He moves from telling us who Christ is, what he has done, how we are united to him, how we find all fullness in him, to then telling us, in light of the fact that we have been united to Christ, how we ought to live. Paul moves from the person of Christ to Christian living. Looked at another way, he moves from giving us the doctrine of Christ, doctrine about Christ, theology of Christ, to the topic of godliness or holiness. Why? Because for the Apostle Paul, doctrine never has done what it is intended to do until it leads us to godliness. Because simply knowing things about God is not God's ultimate goal for us. Conformity to the image of Christ is the ultimate goal. And doctrine is for the purpose of leading us to that godliness and holiness. Another way of looking at it is this way. In the first two chapters, Paul shows us who Christ is and who we are in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, he tells us what we ought to do because we are in Christ. In other words, he says in a nutshell, you are in Christ. Now be who you are. You are in Christ. Now be who you are. Act in such a way that is consistent with what you profess to be and what you have in fact been made to be in Jesus Christ. You are united to Christ. You are united with Christ. These truths, Paul says, are true about you. Now, live in a way which reflects and flows out of that reality of being united to Christ. Now, this reminds us of at least a couple of things. First, we must never minimize the importance of knowing scriptural truth and doctrine, as so many in the church today do. Uh, I mean, as so many in the church today minimize the importance of that. According to Paul, you cannot live the Christian life unless you understand Christian truth, and that means every single one of us must be a theologian to some extent. We don't have to teach a systematic theology class or an Old Testament theology class, but we all must know the basics of Christian beliefs, because without them, we can't live the Christian life. It is incumbent upon us to know the truth if we are going to live in a way that honors God. In fact, if we are going to receive the blessing of living in fellowship with God, we must know the truth, because the truth, Paul says, is unto godliness. There's a flip side of that truth that we must remember as well, and it's this. We must never be satisfied with mere intellectual apprehension of the doctrine of scriptural truth. We must not be satisfied until that doctrine is working its way out in our life. 
Paul clearly expected more of Christians than that we merely know about God. There's a difference. I'm sure you, you, you all know this. There's a difference between knowing facts about God and actually knowing God. We can know a lot of things about God and never be in fellowship with him, never be in a saving relationship with him. Paul expects us to live in such a way that we reflect that our knowledge is not just head knowledge. It's not just intellectual assent. It, 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 it's not just something we nod our heads in agreement with. It's something that's working through the whole of our lives. It's showing itself in, in how we love one another. It's showing itself in, in how we are loyal to the gospel and loyal to Christ, proclaiming his name and living as if he really is Lord in the world. Because Paul has told us that he is. We must never be satisfied with mere intellectual apprehension of doctrine. It must work itself out in our lives. Now, Paul sets before us today... In these first eight verses of chapter 3, teaching about Christian living. And if we were to outline chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 6, we would see the Apostle Paul teaching us many truths about Christian living, calling us to action in Christian living in in, in a variety of areas. In verses 1 through 8, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul is telling us about our relationship to God and what must be a part of that relationship. But if we look down to verse 9 and then from 9 to verse 17 of chapter 3, we will see Paul giving us instructions as to how we are to relate to one another in the local church, in the congregation, in the assembly of God's people. Then if we look beyond that, in verses 18 through 21, we would see Paul telling us how we ought to live in the context of our family in the context of our home, family life, Christian living and family life. And then beginning in verse 22 and down to verse 1 of chapter 4, he tells us how we ought to live in relationship to those with whom we work, either those who are employers or our employers or our employees. And finally, from verse 2 down to verse 6 in chapter 4, he teaches us about prayer. So he's going to specific spheres of life, and he's saying this is how your union with Christ works out in a practical way in Christian living. This is how the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Christ works out in your Christian living. And I want us to look at four imperatives that the Apostle Paul sets forth in these eight verses. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 8. First of all, Notice that Paul tells us that Christians must set their hearts on things above. In verse 1 he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that we are to set our affections on spiritual things. That is where our heart is to be. As one old Puritan said, Treasures are laid up in heaven only as treasures on earth are laid down. Treasures are laid up in heaven only as treasures on earth are laid down. We set our hearts on things above. Now notice in this passage Paul's structure of what we are in Christ and what we ought to do in Christ. Verse 1, if you have been raised up with Christ. Now don't misunderstand, the if is not there to raise the question about whether You have or have not been raised up with Christ. The point is, because you have been raised up with Christ. That's what the if actually signifies there in the original language. Since you have been raised up with Christ, therefore live this way. Again, Paul is telling us who we are. Because as Christians, we have been united to Christ and we've been raised with Christ. Therefore, we are to set our affections, our affections on the things above. Set your desires, he says. Set your yearnings, your heart on the spiritual blessings and principles which are found only in Christ. Paul knows this is absolutely necessary for our sanctification. It is absolutely necessary for Christian growth. And it's absolutely necessary for combating sin. Your heart must be set on God. He must be the one you're hungering after. The blessings which are found in him must be those blessings which are your first 
and only priority. And church, if we're not experiencing this, it is a sign that God is not working in our hearts and that we'd better do something about coming to grips with him and doing business with him because Christians, true Christians, experience that spiritual hunger for God. Their affections are set on things above. Now, that does not mean that we are unconcerned about temporal things. It doesn't mean that we're bad businessmen or bad fathers. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about how to be a good Christian father and mother and child and businessman and and so on in the verses that are ahead. He's not saying don't be concerned about things, but he's asking where's your allegiance? Where are your priorities? What he is saying is very close to what Jesus says when he says, seek first, meaning seek as your ultimate priority the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What do you thank God for most? What do you thank God for most? What do you thank God for first? When you think about thanking God, what are the first things that you thank him for? If they are primarily temporal things, temporal blessings, that may be telling you something about the state of your soul. If you are first thankful for temporal blessings and not for the things above, that may be telling you something. The first principle, set your hearts on things above. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is he your treasure? Is Christ your treasure? Are things above your treasure? This is a good test to see whether we are in Christ or not. Secondly, the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 2, that Christians must set their minds on things above. Not only should our affections be set on God, our desires must be set uh, not only must, should our affections be set on God, our desires set on God, but our minds ought to be set on God. Paul says in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, notice how Paul tells us who we are and how we should act in light of who we are. We have died, he says. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And because of that, Paul said, because of that reality, because that's who you are in Christ, because you've died, because your life is hidden with Christ in God, therefore, set your thoughts on heavenly matters. Paul wants not only your hearts in glory, he wants your thoughts in glory. Paul says that our thoughts should be focused on heavenly matters. We should be pondering them. We should be meditating on them. We should be reflecting upon them. We should be calling these things to mind, keeping them ever before us. Uh, We should be thinking about these heavenly matters. Set your mind on things above. And what does he mean when he says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God? It's a mysterious phrase, isn't it? At the very least, it means this. Though who you are, who you are truly, who you are in Christ, is hidden before the eyes of men right now. And though it may be obscured even to your own sight as you see your imperfections, your failings, the weakness of the church, our sinfulness, our foolishness, the tragic way that we fail time and time again to bear witness to who God is in this world with our lips and our lives. Though that reality, the reality of who we truly are in Christ, may be obscured in the world, and even to yourself, your true life is hidden with Christ in God, and who you are is absolutely apparent to the Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say that one day, just like Christ will be revealed from glory to be not simply the suffering servant, but the Lord of the world, the Lord of the universe, so too we will be revealed to be the inheritance of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of that fact, Paul says, we set our thoughts in heaven. Have you ever pondered your sins and become so depressed 
uh, that you could not go on and 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 and, uh, and 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 seeing what you have yet to become and seeing what you do uh, to others and to those you love the most because of your sin. I mean, you just become so depressed. Have you ever thought and dwelt on that? And have you ever? And I'm, a, I'm not saying we should do that. <laughs> that should be a constant thing. But we all do that at times, right? And we become discouraged. Right? When we see how miserably we fail at times. And then have you ever then juxtaposed that with what Paul says here when he says, you set your thoughts on things above because what you are may not be apparent to the world and it may not even be apparent to you, but what you are will one day be revealed. You will be presented before the Lord spotless, no moral impurity, no imperfection, absolutely complete in Christ and the whole world will know it. Paul says, set your mind on that. Amen? Set your mind, no matter how difficult it is at times, no matter how far short we fall at times, no matter how great the struggle is at times, we are to set our minds on that, on that. Uh, Bishop Lightfoot said many, many years ago, you must not only seek heaven, you must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. Seeking heaven, our affections are put there. Thinking heaven, our thoughts are focused on the things which are above. Again, this does not mean that we ignore temporal things. It means that our priorities are set And as we fulfill our responsibilities and duties as men and women in this life, we do not forget that we are citizens of another country. We are citizens of heaven. And though we are pilgrims here, and though we are to live as obedient pilgrims here, doing the will of God, yet there is another home which awaits us. And there is a reality about us which is going to be revealed. And all the praise and all the glory will not go to us, but to the Lord himself. Amen? Thirdly, Paul goes on to say in this passage, beginning in verse 5, that Christians must engage in spiritual execution. Paul says, put your sins to death. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul is telling us that we are to kill sin. The Puritan Richard Baxter once said, kill sin before it kills you. In this regard, it really is kill or be killed. Kill or be killed. Kill sin before it kills you. Sin, though it presents itself to you as always as something good, something that is pleasurable, something that is desirable, will ultimately destroy you. And the Apostle Paul is saying, in the Christian life, we must kill sin. Now, I want you to notice that Paul does not make mortification, the killing of sin, optional. There are some people who speak as if we can be saved by Christ without his lordship working itself out in our life. But the Apostle Paul says here that the Christian will be, which is what it really says, will be killing sin in his or her life. And Paul gives a reason for that. He tells us we are to kill sin. Why? Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because of these things, the wrath of God will come. Paul is saying God is going to judge the world because of sin. And therefore, we must kill sin because God is going to judge sin. I mean, we cannot be ambivalent about sin. We cannot be apathetic about sin. We must kill it. We must seek to drive it out of our lives. And notice how close this sin seems to be connected to our living. I mean, Paul says it is in the members of our earthly body. This is how the New American Standard Version translates uh, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And in the New King James Version, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, 
put these things to death. I mean, he speaks of sin as if it's a body part. He, he says it's our members, right? It's become so interwoven into our lives, it needs to be ripped out and abstracted from our body. And it needs to be killed. Paul says we are to put to death sin. And he tells us specifically five things that must be done. Now, I remind you that the city of Colossae and the entire Lycus Valley in which Colossae was located was a place like much of the Roman Empire. It was known for sexual immorality. And the Apostle Paul zeroes in on sexual sin. To begin with, he says, kill immorality. Immorality in this passage refers to illicit sexual conduct, illicit sexual sins. He says you kill it. Remember, the Apostle Paul is speaking to people who have come from that background, who have come from that context. He's concerned that they're going to be influenced by the thinking and the mindset and and the behaving of their culture. And he says, you kill that kind of immorality. You kill it. Now, we live in the same kind of sex-crazed culture. Sexual sin is rampant. It's in the very fabric of our culture, church. And if we don't put it to death in our own lives, we will be swept away by it. But notice Paul doesn't stop with the deeds. Notice his next step. He says, kill impurity. Not only immorality, but impurity. What's he speaking about? Impurity refers to the uncleanness of our thoughts, our intentions. He's trying to get into our thought life here. He's saying, don't just kill sin in your deeds, in your actions. Kill it in your thought life as well. And he doesn't stop there. He moves on. He says, kill immorality, impurity, and passion or evil desires. And now he's getting at the will. He's saying if your desires are not changed, then your thought life is going to revert to what it was doing before. And then your behavior is going to revert to what it was doing before. You know that when you sin, if you secretly harbor the desire to continue that sin, you will, in fact, at some point give in to the deed itself. But if you nip the desire for the sin in the bud. Then you can get it in the thought life, and then you can get it in the behavior. Paul is saying, I want your deeds, your thinking, and your desires to be freed of sin. I want you to attack them. I want you to kill the sin in you. And he goes on to say, fourthly, that he wants us to kill covetousness. Paul is saying that wanting things or persons that do not belong to us is a root of this type of sinful behavior. And therefore, covetousness is to be put aside. You know, one of the interesting things about covetousness in the the Ten Commandments is this. The other nine commandments you can do externally. But you can't really covet externally. You have to covet with your heart. And so here Paul is getting at the heart. He's saying, I just don't want you to be righteous outwardly. I want your hearts to be righteous. So don't covet, because that coveting is going to lead you into an inordinate desire for things that you do not have and which do not belong to you, and that's going to leave your wills to be affected, and it's going to leave your thinking to be affected, and it's going to leave your behavior to be affected. Don't do it. And then he concludes with a death blow. He says that covetousness is idolatry. And you scratch your head and you say, well, how can covetousness be equal to to idolatry? Well, consider it this way. Why do we covet something? Why do we covet anything to the point of just having to have it? Why? We covet something or someone because we are convinced that we must have that thing or that person in order to be happy or in order to be satisfied or in order to be fulfilled. And whenever we are convinced that we must have something or someone other than God in order to be happy or satisfied or fulfilled, we have made an idol of that thing or person. And so covetousness is idolatry. This is why contentment is so crucial to Christian living. Without contentment, we are prone to covetousness and ultimately idolatry. What is contentment? Well, some have said that it's wanting what we already have. And that's true as far as it goes. But more than that, contentment is rooted in the realization 
that God has already given me everything I need for my present happiness. That's a mindset we all need to desperately cultivate, especially in the materialistic church age in which we live. We must know that God has already given me everything I need for my present happiness. Now, let me be very careful to say at this point that we do not mortify sin in order to gain favor with God. God's favor must rest upon us before we are even able to mortify sin. And that's why the 18th century Scottish preacher Ebenezer Erskine once said, the Christian mortifies sin because he is at peace with God. The legalist mortifies sin to try to be at peace with God. Do you see the difference? Again, we mortify sin in our life not to gain favor with God. We mortify sin because the grace of God is present in our lives and because we desire to be conformed to the image of the one that he has destined us to be conformed to the image of. Paul says mortify sin. No passive approach to sin does he have. We are to kill it. We are to mortify it. And that leads to his comments in verses 7 and 8. Where fourthly and finally, he tells us Christians must not only set their hearts on things above, they must not only set their minds on things above, they must not only desire to kill sin, but they must then lay aside the practice of sin. Paul says, put aside sin, verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, that was then, but now you must put them all away. And he names some more, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul says, you, you congregation, you were once captured by this, by these things. And I find that very encouraging. <laughs> as discouraging as it may seem at first. Paul is acknowledging that these people had real struggles with deadly sins, which were destroying their lives. The Apostle Paul says this godly church at Colossae was filled with people whose lives had been characterized by anger and malice and rage and all sorts of sexual impurities, but they've been changed in Christ as a witness to the world. And it reminds us, church that there's hope for us too amen because even if no one else knows what's going on in our hearts we know what's going on in our hearts sometimes right and we don't want anyone else to know <laughs> because you know we don't think they will accept us the apostle paul is saying i know what you're struggling with i mean paul wouldn't be talking to these colossians about these things if they weren't struggling with them i mean that would be pointless Paul is speaking about these things because these are things we as Christians continue to struggle with. And the quicker we admit that, the quicker we can get about the sanctifying work of continuing Christian repentance and mortification of sin. And Paul again says, lay aside these things. Specifically, he doesn't speak in generalities because you can't fight sin in generalities. You've got to fight it specifically. When you repent in generalities, you never own up to the reality of the sin that is destroying you and destroying the fellowship of God. And so Paul gets to specifics. Notice what he says. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Anger refers to that burning hatred for other people. A burning hatred. Wrath in this context refers to those outbursts of passion, that rage that we have, that ungodly rage that we have for others, toward others. Malice refers to ill will towards one's neighbor. Slander refers to railing or defaming another's character. And obscene talk, obviously, is any kind of filthy talk or shameful utterances, profanity. It can also refer to abusive speech, as it's sometimes translated. Those destructive words that we use to tear people down. The Apostle Paul says people who are captured by sin are people who are internally conflicted. They are filled with rage, and that rage pours over in the life of their speech. You want to see a person characterized by ungodliness and by the grip of Satan on them? 
They are filled with anger. They are bitter inside, and it pours over in their speech, either in their general speech or in their abusive speech to other people. And Paul says to these Colossians, don't you live this way because that's not who you are. And he says to us, don't you live this way because that's not who you are. That's what you were, but that's not what you are now. Be who you are and therefore kill sin. Now, why is he having to say that? Because when we become Christians, we do not become immediately sinlessly perfected. Amen? I think we all know that. You can breathe a sigh of relief. You don't have to be perfect yet. One day you will be. Not here, but there. Now you must grow. Augustine said the church was a hospital where sick sinners get well, and and that it is. But those sick sinners are not being simply ministered to by the great physician of the soul, and, and that's that. They are actively involved in their own treatment as well. This is sanctification. By the Holy Spirit and the work of sanctification, they strive to kill sin. Are you striving to kill sin? It is one of the marks of Christian growth. Are you locating, identifying, and then seeking out and destroying the sin in your life, which is destroying you and destroying your relationships with others? It's a sign that the Spirit is at work in you if you are. Church, the great lesson of this passage is that holiness, in this case, the ability to say no, to fleshly indulgence, as Paul calls sin in chapter 2, verse 23. That holiness comes not from rigorous asceticism or self-restraint. Here's the key. But from a mind captivated and controlled by the beauty and majesty of the risen Christ and all that we are in him in the heavenlies. And this is so important to know and understand because, because one constant reality... One common thread that unites all Christians and all denominations and all churches is that they all struggle with the temptation to sin and want to know how to defeat it and break free of its paralyzing grip. And unfortunately, to a large degree, the church has failed in its well-meant efforts to equip Christians to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Typically today, and throughout all church history, but typically today, The approach to getting people to do what is right is by telling them in a very loud, angry, and threatening voice, don't do what is wrong. Don't do what is wrong. We've operated under the assumption that if we portray the horrid consequences of sin in sufficiently graphic and revolting terms, we will succeed in motivating the human will to turn from it. Now, I'm not suggesting that sin doesn't have hard and devastating consequences. It most certainly does, now and especially in eternity. Nor am I suggesting that we cease telling people to abstain from sin or that we tone down the urgency with which we warn them concerning its deceitful and destructive way. Not at all. But if all we bring to bear against the incredibly powerful allure of sensual self-indulgence is a just-say-no campaign, We don't stand much of a chance. That kind of moralistic preaching is of no value against fleshly indulgence. Any approach to resisting temptation that consists solely or even primarily of, you know, a teeth-gritting, fist-clenching, you know, will-racking resolve not to yield will ultimately fail. Or if that does manage to succeed in the short term, It will produce a joyless and mean-spirited legalism that will hardly prove attractive either to other Christians or non-Christians. What's missing in our battle with temptation? And I'll close with this. What's missing in our battle with temptation is this. Without intending to be too simplistic, it's really the failure to understand the source of sin's allure. We sin because it feels good. Amen? We need to admit that. We sin because it feels good. 
Sin is hard to resist because it has a remarkable capacity to please, at least in the short term. The author of Hebrews spoke of the passing pleasures of sin in Hebrews 11.25. Granted, the pleasure sin brings is passing. It's transient. It's fleeting. But it's still a pleasure. That's why we so readily yield to it. The bottom line is this. When faced with temptation, the immediate gratification of sin will almost always triumph over the fear of its long-term consequences. I'll say it again. When faced with temptation, the immediate gratification of sin will almost always triumph over the fear of its long-term consequences. So how do we defeat the power of sin's promise of pleasure? How do we defeat the power of sin's promise of pleasure? And the answer to that is simply this. By faith in God's promise of a superior pleasure. By faith in God's promise of a superior pleasure. In the previous message in this series, in this series we saw that Paul concluded chapter 2 of Colossians with an indictment of any attempt to defeat the promptings of the flesh by the imposition of ascetic, legalistic, extra-biblical regulations. If they provide only an illusion of victory over fleshly impulses, what will actually work? Is there an alternative? Well, yes, there is. And as I said at the conclusion of the previous message, Paul will do more than merely denounce what is ineffective in our battle with the flesh. And this brings us back to where we started this morning, verses 1 and 2. Paul's recommendation is found there. This is how we defeat sin. This is how we put it to death in our life. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And these two verses are simply another way of saying what I said a moment ago. Holiness. The ability to say no to fleshly indulgence and the passionate desire to walk in the way of Christ comes not primarily from a rigorous asceticism or self-restraint, but from a mind captivated and controlled by the beauty and majesty of the risen Lord and all that we are in him in the heavenlies. Yielding to fleshly urges is overcome by seeking the things above. Fixing our minds on things above leaves little time or mental energy for earthly fantasies. The heart that is entranced by the risen Christ is not easily seduced by the things that are on earth. Paul uses language here that requires both the energetic orientation of our will, you know, keep seeking the things that are above, as well as the singular devotion of our mind. Set your mind. Set your mind. This is a conscious and deliberate movement of the soul to fix and ground itself on, to really to, to glut itself in, if you will, the beauty of spiritual realities as opposed to the trivial and tawdry things of this world. And the reason we must seek the things above is because that is where Christ is, he tells us in verse 1. He is the exalted center and supreme sovereign of the eternal and heavenly realm. Why would we want our lives and thoughts and actions fixed anywhere else? The appeal of heavenly things is the presence of Jesus. It is the glory and beauty and, and the multifaceted personality and power and splendor of the risen Christ to which Paul directs our attention. The Apostle Paul is not unwilling to call us away from the earthly and transient temptations of the flesh. And again, in verses 5 and 6, as we saw, he grounds his appeal to abstain from immorality, impurity, and idolatry in the impending reality of divine wrath. But only after, and I believe because, he has something incomparably more grand and glorious to which he has already called us. In verses 1 through 4, namely Jesus and the grandeur of things above. And this, I believe, Paul would have us know, 
is of great value against fleshly indulgence. Great value against fleshly indulgence. Earlier in the service, we heard read Psalm 16. Among the many incredible statements in Psalm 16, consider David's declaration in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, I fear (laughs) that if I were honest with myself, I'd be forced to identify a number of things in life that I consider good that bears no relation to Jesus Christ whatsoever. I'm sure we all could. And I'm grieved by that. It's another way of saying that my life isn't nearly as Christ-centered as it should be. And this is what makes our passage this morning, especially verses 1 through 4, so indescribably important. Paul's Christ-centered focus is unmistakable. For the Christian, everything makes sense only when seen in terms of our identity, relationship, and union with Christ. We are with him in his death and with him in his rising. And as verse 4 makes clear, we are also destined to be with him in glory when he comes again to this earth to consummate his kingdom. Dying with Christ points to the definitive and irreversible split with the old life in which we were once immersed. We are to be as lifeless and as insensible to it as a corpse is to the stimuli of the world in which it once existed. Do we understand that? Likewise, being raised with Christ points to our new status that requires a a, a new ethic, a new morality, a new lifestyle. One that Paul has outlined in some detail beginning in verse 5 and continues all the way into chapter 4. By virtue of our having died with Christ, we have been set free from something, namely sin. And by virtue of our having been raised with Christ, we we have also been set free for something. Namely, a new life in him. Our death with Christ severed any links we had with the values and life of the present world order. And our resurrection with Christ united or connected us with the new heavenly eternal order. Or again, we died with him to our old ways. And we have been raised with him to his new ways. So let me emphasize the Christ-centeredness of Paul once again. We have been raised with Christ in the past. We are hidden with Christ in the present. And we will be revealed with Christ in the future. Not to be connected or united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, ends all hope of a break with the past, a power for the present, or glory for the future. We have no independent life of our own. We can claim no right in our bodies or minds or souls or possessions. The only life that we now have is actually the life of Christ in us. And so our interests must be identical with his. Our goals and aims and vision must be his. All that is precious and dear to him should be to us as well. And all that is alien and offensive to him should affect us in the same way. Again, this isn't to suggest that we can attain sinless perfection in this life. Paul makes it clear that our experience of final and full glory comes only at the second coming of Jesus. But in light of what has already happened to us, we died, were buried, and now are raised with Christ. And in light of what will happen to us, we will share his glory when he is revealed. Our lives must be radically different, radically otherworldly radically sin-denying and Christ-affirming. Once again, the only reason, the sole ground for Paul's exhortation to set our hearts and minds on the things above is because that is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We don't seek things that are above because that is where the things are, but because the things are where Christ is. Amen? Things above have no value or appeal except insofar as they reveal Christ, focus on Christ, and bring us more of Christ. We are not to read Paul's words as if he had in view heavenly stuff, whether treasures or streets of gold or rewards for earthly obedience. 
the things that are above, those things that are to be the focus of our concentrated pursuits are Christ's things, Christological things. Apart from him, they lose their luster. Apart from him, they have no power to please. Apart from him, as one commentator wrote, heavenly things would be no better than hellish torments. Apart from him. And I want to encourage you, in response to this message, take some time to identify those things below that hinder your focus on the things above. What earthly entanglements exert a downward drag on your soul? What worldly attractions have become distractions and keep your mind off of Christ? You know what they are. What fleshly affections compete with passion for him? The power to disengage from and triumph over all such rival pleasures will come only as we see and savor him who is above. Have you come this morning not believing, not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, not knowing fellowship with him, and therefore you have no idea what we're talking about? You have no clue how to fight against sin? Let me say to you very quickly, you cannot fight sin apart from Christ. You are dead in sin, and the only way you can fight sin is when by union with Christ you have been made dead to sin. Then you can fight the remnants of sin in your life, and that you can only do by bowing the knee to Christ and receiving him as the all-sufficient Savior who brings forgiveness and freedom and fullness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your holy name, and we ask that you would cause your word to break forth in light and godliness in our lives. Make known to us the glory of your Son. Shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ Jesus into our hearts, Blind us, we pray, to all but him. Captivate us with his splendor that we, like Moses, might say no to the passing pleasures of sin. Help us to rest in Christ alone as the treasure greater than all earthly rewards. For his sake and in his name we pray, amen.